Look with me again over at one of the great vehicles we have for helping train people up in being able to be great disciples of Christ. And the great vehicle we have for that is the Word of God. We know that because as Paul disciples Timothy, he makes a great reference to that in 2 Timothy chapter 3. There the Bible reads, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking. We looked at rebuking last week. It's also the word in Greek, elenko, which is also expose, reprove, convict. It's useful for teaching, reproving, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jeff had already looked at the idea of training, and then I had done some follow-up on the training as well. Then we looked at the exposure or the reproving that scripture does as it does lay us bare so that we can have that result of he's told me everything that I ever did that brings me to correction. And now when, when we hear of correction and all scripture is useful, as Paul affirms to Timothy here, all scripture is useful for correction. But when you hear correction, probably you hear what I hear, which is why were you doing that? Right? It's the idea of the school marm, you know, kind of giving you the correction, maybe grabbing you by the ear. It's, it's a correction that seems to be one of pointing out faults. But the word that Paul uses here is not a word that has anything to do with berating or anything in that family at all. It's a very interesting word because it's one that would be somewhat familiar to, to us. It is the word orthosis, epinorthos, orthosis. Orthosis, uh, I mean, you've maybe heard of orthodonture, right? If you've had crooked teeth, you've spent thousands of dollars for that sort of orthosis. If you've ever broken a bone of any sort, you've had it made right. And the word ortho, which is the word that Paul is using here, is at the heart of it. And the word ortho is to take something that has been crooked and to make it straight. Amen. Here's a, a very interesting time where the word is also used. Look with me over in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul actually practiced a little bit of orthosis at this point. Because one of his buddies had gone a bit astray. Spoiler alert, it's Peter. Verse 11. When Cephas, which is uh, just Peter in Aramaic, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James... He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that, they, that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. We haven't encountered the word yet, by the way, in case you're wondering. These are still kind of exposing, reproving actions that Paul is taking. When I saw that they were not acting in line, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And through all of that, what is he able to do? He's able to bring Peter back in line with the will of God, in line with the truth of the gospel. This is the goal of ortho, of orthos, whether it's setting the bone in your leg, so that it's not crooked, that's a miserable life. My goodness, when, when all is made straight and the cast comes off and you kind of click your heels and the excitement that comes from that, why? Because ortho 
brings you back to where you were always meant to be. We all have within us an intended place where we're meant to be, but most especially we're intended to be in alignment with Christ. I always, when I think about ortho, I always think about being in alignment with Christ. I always think about Jesus saying, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he even says, and he's talking about work, and you will find rest for your souls. Well, when we align ourselves with Christ, the power of that alignment is such a significant and special thing in our lives. It is an affirmation of your grandeur as a man who will walk the rest of his days, no longer walking aimlessly, but instead walking in alignment, in alignment with Jesus Christ. But whenever we get out of alignment with Christ, it's no fun. Yes, secretly, we actually harbor a whole lot of bitterness, even though outwardly, we might be acting as though, yeah, yeah, everything's okay. We know deep down, when we're out of alignment with the will of God, that there is some real misery in our soul that we're experiencing. And it's, I mean, I've I've joked about this before, but as as Jesus is heading one way, and we're in a yoke, maybe you're not aware of a yoke, but a yoke is the way that you are able to bridle two horses together um, so that they're able to kind of pull in the same direction and do work in the same direction and that yoke you literally kind of put your neck through it as as you operate together again if we're in a yoke with christ and he's heading in this direction and we're actually distracted by the world over here and we keep trying to go over there well then our walk in christ our christianity is literally a pain in the neck and it remains that until someone like a paul to a peter or like a paul to the corinthians until someone comes along and helps us to get straight is, is really we should welcome correction because correction is a bone set right correction is a life set right correction is a life aligned with jesus now we talked about the way that you get there is when when somebody is out of line you expose that to the point where it's so sufficient that you're able to correct them that exposure that comes is what we studied out last week that was the hand, heart, head type kind of encounter that that we talked about being trained in so that we would be ready to go when we see something out of alignment. But now, as we're trying to help them get back in alignment, we may be doing a great job of, okay, hand, tell me exactly what it is that you did that was sinful. Uh, and, And that's laid out, and you can bring scripture to show that that is out of alignment with Jesus. And then heart, what was this desire that you were looking to have achieved by heading down that pornographic side or into that flirtatious behavior? What was the desire that was so churning within you that you were looking to see fulfilled? And then you show, well, well, this is what true godly desires should be in our lives. And this is what gives us real fulfillment, not the cotton candy satisfaction of that deceitfulness of sin that we were supposedly enthralled by for a moment until we were ensnared by it. But, but, but instead, what is the depth of real fulfillment in Christ? And we bring that about by Scripture as well. But, and, then, and then finally, the head. What was the excuse that you gave? You obviously have been walking in Christ more than a day. You know that what you did is out of alignment with Christ. You know what you did is, in other words, transgression or sin. So you must have somehow rationalized it. And as you rationalized it, what was the excuse you gave? And so through all of that, that is the reproving, the exposing, convicting. That goes on there now but we need to know is it having an intended effect right we may do a wondrous job of having just the right scriptures that nail it down 
But the way that we determine whether they're being realigned or not is whether repentance is really happening. Whether the turn is coming where they are back now no longer living for self, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And it's very difficult. It's some of the most difficult stuff that we pray to God for help with is can we be discerning as we're bringing someone to repentance? And, and yet while we pray for that, I also am astounded. Young disciples, old disciples, living on the other side of the world disciples, it's as though with the Holy Spirit within us that we all really do have some sort of a gyroscope that keeps us course corrected, that helps us to really be clear and discerning about whether someone has come to a godly sorrow or a worldly sorrow after they've been exposed or confronted, convicted by the scriptures. Right? You get reproved, and you can either respond with pride or with humility. You can respond with surrender or with a stiff neck. This is what we're going to talk about tonight. Because it's one thing to be really great at reproving, which you can do through the scriptures. That was last week's lesson. Go back. It's online. Now, here is one of the most helpful passages to see whether it's godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. Anybody know where I'm going? Yes. Where? 2 Corinthians 7. 10. Way to go. 2 Corinthians 7. We're not going to go to 10. We're going to go to 8 because we want to see the exposure that comes and then the response to that reproving exposure or, or conviction. So 2 Corinthians 7, and this is the model we'll be working through. In this case, the Corinthians had clearly gotten out of alignment with what it is to be the body of Christ. Their joints out of alignment, more importantly though, that the direction of their lives um, communally were out of alignment with God. As such, Paul needs to send them a letter to get them corrected. And the way that he does it is to reprove or expose. He, he says this to Ephesians church as well. We who are children of light should have nothing to do with the sinful deeds of darkness, but rather to alenko them, expose, reprove, to convict on those things. Why? In hopes that it will bring correction or godly sorrow and repentance. I'm going to be using correction interchangeably with a response of godly sorrow and repentance. And how do we know if we're bringing somebody to correction? If we see godly sorrow rather than worldly sorrow. That's what we want to get good at as those that would be working with one another as we see the body of Christ really flourish as we all grow in our maturity in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 7, here Paul goes. Verse 8, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Well, his letter was a letter of intervention. It was a letter of alenko, a letter of <coughs> reproval. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you but only for a little while. That's an important phrase. There is hurt. No harm, by the way. There is hurt, but it is a staccato hurt that doesn't last for a long period of time. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Amen. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. So Paul discerns, my letter worked. The intervention of Alenko, of, of um, reproval, resulted in your correction. It resulted in orthosis. And it resulted in alignment again with where you're always meant to be, with me, with the rest of the brothers, with the body of Christ, with the, the work of Christ. Amen. But how does he know? Here's how he knows. In, in verse 10, as he says, Godly sorrow, which they exhibited, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Amen. But 
Worldly sorrow brings death. And now this is a very interesting thing he says because he begins to delineate either, he's either delineating godly sorrow or repentance itself. Here's why I, I don't know. No, nobody knows actually which he's referring to. It could be that he's just describing godly sorrow, but look in verse 10. He says, godly sorrow produces repentance. Verse 11, godly sorrow produces earnestness, eagerness, indignation, etc. So they're parallel ideas. So if godly sorrow produces repentance and godly sorrow produces earnestness, eagerness, etc., maybe earnestness, eagerness, etc. is a description of repentance itself of metanoia, of a changed mindset, this is what you see. You know what? We're splitting hairs, though. The key thing that we want to look for is are these attributes, whether you want to call that godly sorrow or whether you want to call that repentance. Either way, we want to look for these attributes, and as we bring the Word of God in an exposing, reproving manner, we want to see, is it having that effect? As we bring the Word of God on the hand, the behavior, on the heart, the desire, and on the, the head, the excuse, we want to see is the response that's coming from our friend godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. Is it these attributes that we have here? Here's the two paths that Paul just describes. I sent a letter that was intervention. But the letter doesn't guarantee the, the path that you're going to take. Because you all have free will. Individually, collectively. And in that free will, you can either decide to respond with your arms folded or to respond with your arms wide open receiving the fullness of what it is that the Holy Spirit is bringing your way. Fueled by the Holy Spirit, Paul sends this letter, and it produces either godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. If it had produced worldly sorrow, that leads to death. Yeah. That's a frightening path that we'll take, and we'll, we'll consider it for a moment. Or godly sorrow, which leads to repentance. Let's consider for a moment what worldly sorrow is. I've spent a lot of time looking at the positive attributes of godly sorrow, and it seems as though the flip side of a lot of those ends up being really good descriptors of what worldly sorrow would look like. So again, you get reproved, maybe it's your roommate, maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your child, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's a brother in the church who has to muster up the love to be able to stop and say, not easy to do, but I need to talk to you for a moment about this, Thomas. I watched the way that you're interacting with his brothers over there. I, I got to talk to you about these things. And at that moment, Thomas is either gearing up with defensiveness and worldly sorrow or receptivity and godly sorrow. Yep. And it's going to be one of those two paths. We want to be praying that the Holy Spirit is doing this work so that he does bring about the desired intended result of correction, realignment Amen. with the will of Jesus. But here are some things to look out for just in case it might be going down the path of worldly sorrow. Uh, the big one is damage control. Think about some of the more famous supposed sorrows that have been expressed publicly in, in our lifetime. All right, I'll say some names. I'm not trying to get political uh, or trying to you know, go against one sports team or another. But if, if you think about people who have gotten their hand caught in the cookie jar and have had press conferences right afterwards. Uh, let's say Kobe Bryant after a trip to Thailand. Uh, let's, let's say uh, Chris Brown after an interaction with his girlfriend. Uh, let's, let's say Bill Clinton with a few interactions. Uh, Jimmy Swaggart. Jimmy Swaggart, sure. Uh, there are a, a whole cavalcade. Matter of fact, there's a whole book 
that, that's, that that's actually called My Bad. And it's the most famous apologies in the history of the world. I, it's an interesting study because in almost every single one of those, in every single one of those, it is a deep apology. But any of you, because you have the Holy Spirit and you have the discernment, you would be able to say in a second, that's worldly sorrow. Right? And all of the fellows that I just mentioned, as you listen to their apologies... What were you thinking? Were you thinking, wow, isn't this... I, I'm so excited that the rest of the world sees godly sorrow on display before all to see right here. Uh, yeah, no, 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 right? A, a hundred times no, because we're realizing what's going on there. That press conference is merely damage control. And sometimes my apology to Deb or my apology to my kids or even to somebody that I, I, I offended and something I said publicly... That my apology, sadly, if, if I don't really think it through, my apology is nothing more but flippant. Let me get over, let me get this over with and let me control the damage that I caused in the mess of that. Nothing having to do with real spiritual intervention. It's just me in my flesh resisting the work of the Holy Spirit and hunkering back down into a place where I can get over this and stay in my flesh and not have my life inconvenienced too much by this interloper. Uh, I mean, it's a sad way to put it, but, but I think you guys know what it, what it is to actually try to say the right words at the right time with the right inflection, with the right puppy dog eyes to just get this person off your back, right? Our, our, our teens know how to do it rather well because their video games are at, at risk right now, <laughs> right? There could be real consequence that's coming. So, yes, mom. You know what? Thank you so very, very much for pointing that out. You are both insightful and obviously loving to a degree that I never imagined before. But now I'm seeing it. And in seeing it, I'm also seeing my sin in this matter as well. Uh, from now on, you watch. My bed will be made. The dishes will be put away. Uh, thank you for pointing out my, my absolute sloth in this matter. I see it now. Sloth, sloth. If, if I had a, a flagrum, I, I, I would be going for it right now because I'm so impacted by what you've said. Thank you very little. And where's my controller? Uh, right? That's, that's classic damage control. It's no different than any of the celebrities that I've mentioned. And it's very easy to do. Why? Because we now know the right incantation, right? The right words to say to get someone off our back in fellowship. And it's very dangerous. And it's... it's um, Really, really difficult the more mature that we get, that it's easy to kind of get it out right so that we control the damage. Uh, and, and rather than control the damage at this point, we want to welcome it and, and really let the, the full work of the Holy Spirit come through in this. Um, Self-pity is a very dangerous one, super dangerous, because it's what took hold of Judas, Matthew 26 and 27. By the way, this is a different slide deck than I originally intended to have for tonight, but we're going with it. I, I, up online, I'll have the full slide deck, and I'll have full notes of every scripture that uh, describes not only damage control and self-pity, uh, excuse-making, all of that, that, that will come in this. But self-pity is a very, very difficult one. Where does Jesus say the full blame for our sin comes from? Exactly, from within, from our hearts, is where all of these things come. Not because... My, my boss is a jerk or because I had a bad night's sleep. That's not the source of our sin. 
And if we allow it to be that, or we allow it to be the person who cut you off on the road, or any other circumstance, then you are really painting yourself as one that no has no control over your life or, or your righteousness. All it matters is the right circumstances present themselves and you're just going to go down that nasty path and be out of alignment again. Who, who wants that? Who wants to kind of present themselves to that degree of weakness? But as repulsive as it is as a man to kind of try to paint ourselves into a place of self-pity, sadly, we do it if it will help us to maintain self-preservation of our fleshliness. And it's, 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 a, it's, it, it's just a terrible thing. But the worst part about it, this is the most dangerous one, by the way. By far the most dangerous one. Yep. Because once you buy into this, there's no coming out. And then you think everybody else is insensitive to you. Though if we only had a fellowship that was more enlightened right now, then maybe they could really counsel me out of this with years of therapy and love. And then maybe that will be the great deliverance that I need from, from, from this very situation where I am. I mean, ah, oh, you don't want to go. You're a man. Be men. This is a great moment that the Holy Spirit is bringing your way. Do not go the path of wisdom at this moment. And, and, and really kind of bring it. Just like bring it. I, I, need, I need this intervention in my life. Um, but think of, uh, think of the great examples of self-pity in the scriptures. And Esau, ah, oh, my sin is too much for me to bear. I'm sorry, that's Cain. My, my sin, my, my punishment is too much for me. Galatia, uh, Genesis 4. Uh, or Esau in Hebrews 12. Uh, Hebrews 11, rather. It says, Hebrews 12. He sought, he sought his birthright. He sought realignment with tears. But it, they were just simply tears for his own purposes. Uh, or Judas as well, who, who likewise had tears. Peter had tears. Judas had tears. Not every tear is the same, obviously. Right. As a matter of fact, I, I often recognize that many times in my own life, the greater the tears, the greater the worldly sorrow. Mm. I'm just saying that's for me. It may, it may not be the case for you, but it's, it's a lot easier for me to get worked up about my own inconvenience and how my life is going wrong at this moment and have empathy for me, 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 me. It's not even a real word, right? Empathy for me. Uh, but but to, to kind of really feel deeply about myself and my own shortcoming at this moment rather than to, to really recognize, wait a minute, I'm out of alignment with Jesus right now. If there's going to be any sort of a sorrow, it's the sorrow that, that I have actually pulled away from him rather than the sorrow that my life is about to be inconvenienced through this. The classic one, though, is excuses. Out came this calf, right? Oh, the worst ever, right? Aaron and, and uh, Moses and, well, Moses, you know how these people are. Ah, you know, so, you know, I, I talked with them and I figured maybe we need some sort of an object to celebrate Yahweh. So they, I said, hey, why don't you give me all of your jewelry? So they gave me their jewelry and I, I kind of boiled it all up and out came this calf. Who knew? Oh, my goodness. Right? I mean, it's the most laughable scripture for us that, that we see. But here's your hope, by the way. Even in the midst of that ugliness, there was ortho in Aaron's life. Because you read on, before we get to the end of Exodus, we're already looking at him being dressed for service as the main high priest of all of Israel. What in the world? Amen. That even though you may go down one of these horrid ways... That nonetheless, here you come. 
or, or how about Saul? Again and again, 1 Samuel 15 is a good study in this, and it's a good chapter to study. Where, you know, but, I, but, but, but I did. I, I, I did obey. You know, well, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I, killed, I killed everything they wanted me to kill. But some of these things I thought I'd keep for myself, and that way it would give greater honor to God. And I was thinking that this would work out to even greater glory. He's, he's just excuse, 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 rather than, you know what? I didn't obey. I, I didn't even come close. I, you know, I, I love how uh, Samuel, in the middle of it, just stop it. You know what? Just stop it, Saul. It, I don't want to even hear another word of this. Just stop it. Let me tell you what's what in the midst of that. His actually was a sorrow that led to death. Uh, and it really did, in, in a frightening one. But um, here's why excuses are so terrible from being able to give us alignment. I think the engine room of alignment in godly sorrow is indignation. Amen. Right? The, the righteous discontentment and anger that we have that I would stray so far from Jesus. And now that I see it, oh my goodness, what Jesus has done for me, how it is that I've treated him, that fire in our belly cannot exist. If we say, I, I, I've strayed so far from Jesus. Well, I mean, you were nagging me though. Right? The minute that that excuse is there, what happened to the fire? Gone, right? There, there is no engine room at that point. And it's very frightening because excuses really do take away all the great energy that God is giving within you to be able to get yourself back in alignment with his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Uh, selectivity. Uh, this is a, a classic one. And, and it may be that there are certain ways that people like to, in, in a sense, respond to reproof. But if they're not responding holistically, all of our life, aligning back up, even... Even those sins that we call respectable or pet sins, right? My materialism, my kind of humorous movies that don't have any nudity in them, but boy, do they have double entendres that really make you think dirty and illicit thoughts along the way. Uh, you, maybe we are being challenged on holiness in general as we're trying to be realigned. And, and maybe some of our holiness might be, well, yes, I will be holy. I'll, uh, you know, I'll dress less provocatively and I'll kind of worship God by, by giving more of my, my resources. But I still want to keep this side hustle of this one YouTube channel that really is entertaining for me. And, you know, how bad is it really? I mean, that's selectivity. It's, it's not like, ah, I get it. I see it all now. My goodness, yes. Let me align with Jesus. There's nothing sweeter than aligning with Jesus. Selectivity is a good indicator that then it's not a supernatural response on our part, but one of the flesh. Uh, repetition, uh, that's not, repetition just means that you're just trying, boy, to um, get over it by just doing what's called penitentia, right? Assigning pain to the behavior. Ah, I masturbated. Oh, it's terrible, bad, terrible. I'm putting Jesus on the cross. I'm hurting other people. I'm, I'm feeling bad. I'm, I'm confessing and everybody's looking at me. And in all the pain of that, you're trying to somehow make the pain that's going to allow you to extinguish the behavior. That's nothing more than associative conditioning. It's nothing more than just a, a modern behaviorist's attempt at behavior modification. Is that what you think is going to bring you deliverance? Versus the work of the Holy Spirit to transform our mind, to take us from setting our mind to things below to things above. 
that when this reproof comes our way, if there is a godly sorrow, we look at it from a completely different lens. We see it radically differently where there's no room in our lives to allow any of those behaviors there again. But this is a very helpful one too, is if it's a lengthy process, you can bet that it's worldly sorrow. Why? Because Paul says, I see that this letter of Alenko, this letter of intervention, this letter of reproof has hurt you. But for how long? Only a little while. And thus you are not harmed in any way by us. But it is, as I mentioned, it's a staccato pain and it's an intense pain, but it is a pain that doesn't harm you. It is a pain that does deliver you. And it is a hurt. For sure, it is a hurt. But it is a healing hurt from the Holy Spirit. But here's what we do. This is what I do. Is Well, maybe I can take it in small doses. right? If I can get a little bit of pain and a little bit of pain. And maybe I wean off of this thing little by little. And, you know, I often study the Bible with people and they say, well, it's a process. Uh, you know, I just want to be like, hey, shut up. <laughs> like, where do you see a process in Scripture of someone going from dead in sin to alive in Christ? Where do you see a process? Well, you know, it's all a process. Yeah, yeah, there's sanctification where your strengths flare and they're greater and greater. Yeah, I get that. That is a process. But we're talking about time out because of sin. Dealing with a, a, a godly sorrow because of sin versus a worldly sorrow because of sin. Where there is a godly sorrow... With regard to sin, there's not a, well, let's be wise about this. You know, I'm available uh, every other Tuesday for the next couple months. Maybe we can kind of talk about this. What in the world? There, there needs to be the alarm that goes off. When the alarm goes off, we don't, we don't kind of think, ah, oh, all right, maybe, maybe I'll dabble in this for a while, hoping that eventually, through osmosis, I'll be all in and change based on the constant jabbering of you guys as we talk here. So again, if, if someone was trying to kind of hold back from the full frontal work of the Holy Spirit because their flesh, the, this is the deal. All of these things are worldly sorrow because it's a sorrow where you're sorry about your own worldly self. It, it might as well be called fleshly sorrow because you're trying to preserve your flesh. Your flesh is engaged creatively, ten tenaciously in self-preservation. And whatever of these strategies may fend off a complete surrender of self and a, and a complete dying to self, then your flesh will, will want to engage in that. Uh, and, and we've got to recognize that there is always a battle between the spirit and the flesh. And, and we need to recognize what it is that, that God really wants us to, to, to be able to do as we go about this. Wow, we're, we're going long. All right, let's talk now godly sorrow. Not worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow. Now, here is the biggest thing I want to try to get across to you guys. The first word in that godly sorrow, there are, there are six descriptors, but the seventh governs them all. And it's this word. And I, I know it's a Greek word. Yeah, Greek thing. But the Greek word is like an intensifier. It is a turbo boost to every other thing that goes on here. It's a, it's a nitro canister hooked up to the car of your godly sorrow. I mean, th this, this is a, a super-duper catalyst of all catalysts that is going to supercharge your response. Spoide is, a, spude is the word that means that you are both urgent and uh, important. That what's going on here? 
So it's the most urgent thing in your life and the most important thing in your life. For me, I just always think, when I see Spoo Day, I put two exclamation marks. Because if something is urgent and important, well, it won't be an example of that. Your house is on fire, right? If your house is on fire, you're going to get it done. Now, some things may be important but not urgent, like going to the gym. It's important, but it's not, there's no deadline for you going to the gym, right? So it's not, it's not like your house is on fire. And some things may be, some things may be urgent but not important, right? Like the phone ringing, it's urgent, right? It's got a real urgency to it, but it's not as important as your house is on fire. So I don't know if those things all kind of come together here, but you take the, the most kind of uh, uh, intensity of the urgency, the intensity of the importance, put them together, and that's the word that is now going to govern all of these words. Wow. Now, they go together, the clearing of yourself and the indignation, that when you really do kind of get open about this, suddenly there's something about getting open, and, and not just sort of open. You are eager and urgent and intense and determined that, that this is going to happen, right? There's no battleship going on. L5, did I get you? Is that what your sin was? There's none of that when, when we're really allowing the Holy Spirit to bring us into the light and to be realigned with the orthos that God has intended for us. But when you realign that way and there's a clearing of yourself, then immediately is something about laying that out through our own mouth in the, in the light of day before God and before many witnesses to realize, oh, I see it now. I hear it now. And then there is an indignation. It's, it's a Psalm 51 response. It is, before you, you, Lord, have I sinned. He knows that he sinned with Uriah. He knows that he sinned with Bathsheba. He knows he sinned with Joab. He knows he sinned with his, uh, the, the uh, counselors in his court who had to go get Bathsheba and it, kind of uh, abduct her and bring her. He knows he's, uh, of course he knows that. But now he knows, holy smokes, I've sinned before you and have done what is evil in your sight. Surely I am a sinful wretch of humanity. I'm sinful from my birth. Right? You, you see the flip of the switch when he comes to a place of godly sorrow. And it is spude. It is earnest and it is urgent as he's coming to that. Um, the other two, fear and longing. There's nothing that clears the mind, uh, Samuel Johnson said, greater than the prospect of being hanged in the morning. <laughs> you suddenly think very clearly. Right? As, as, I mean, think, think of it as uh, who, you guys are still in school, right? And you know, you're, you're sleeping peacefully, sleeping peacefully. And Brian Regan says this. And then suddenly your head just lifts off the pillow as you say, oh no. Today's the science fair, and I don't have a project. That fear that comes through you, suddenly your mind is racing as to what it is that you can do in the next 38 minutes to cobble together a science fair project. It's a cup. It's a cup of dirt. Move on. That was his. his. But fear is important. Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This, this is an, it's, it is phobos. It is the appropriate kind of shaking you by the lapel. But this is not just waking up in the morning. This is not that kind of an alarm. This is you driving down I-264 at 64 miles per hour because, you know, that's how fast you drive on a 50-mile-an-hour road. And, and as you're going down that road, you fall asleep 
and the alarm is from your family. It's like, Dad, you're sleeping! Right? It's, it's that spoo day attached to Phobos. Right? Alarm, fear that, 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 is, that is there. But what does that do? It wakes you up. It clears your mind. The keep on keeping on of the kind of the shaping of the deceitfulness of sin is suddenly cast off. So you see with new eyes. And when you do, you realize how far you are from the Lord. And then it's accompanied immediately by longing. Paul uses this word 11 times in the New Testament. Uh, for example, in Romans 1. How I long to be united with you, to, to come to see you and impart upon you some spiritual gift. It's always associated with the idea of he is apart from someone he loves. And he longs to be back with them. Psalm 42 is a beautiful picture. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O oh God. When you have the supernatural wake-up call, you realize, oh no, I am far from God. Then the immediate and complimentary response is a longing. The fear or the alarm gets you out of, out of the bed, but the longing gets you to the altar. The fear doesn't get you to the altar. And if it does, it's a dysfunctional approach to it. The longing gets you to the altar. It's why First John says, perfect love drives out fear. Fear has its place. It is not meant to be the long trajectory of how you make sense of your entire life with God, although a, a healthy fear of the Lord is always a wondrous thing. But it always clears our mind so that we can then appreciate some of the other things, like a love for the Lord that gets us there. And then finally, the last two is... Whoop. Nah. It was there for a moment, right? Yeah. Here it comes. Zeal and... Avenging. And avenging. Uh, what, what zeal, what we're going to see just as done. Well, I think you might have what concern. Mm -hmm. Guess what the Greek word is? Zealos, which means yeah. zealous. Yeah. yeah, that's my insight tonight for you. <laughs> but, but, but a zeal for the Lord. Who's somebody that you know to have a zeal for God in the midst of a sinful situation? Yes. Phineas. Phineas, right? Numbers 25. <laughs> a, a, great, a great character study in this idea of zeal with Spude supercharging that zeal that he has. But this is what we bring to bear against the old sin in our life. It is not a whatever. It is a whatever it takes, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, because Spude is there. And then when that, is, when that zeal is there, then you're ready to right every wrong. You are ready to avenge. You are Zacchaeus coming down from the tree. Here and now, I give half of all I've got to the poor. And if I robbed anything, I have four times as much. Let's, go, let's do this thing. I get it. My eyes have been opened. The intervention has come my way. It is super clear. I am now in alignment with God. I'm in alignment literally with Jesus as we walk side by side to my house for me to be able to host him at this wondrous time. It's a beautiful thing. And it's, it's what we, when there is sin, even though we're training one another, when there is sin, we stop. All right? We stop and we practice both reproof and correction. The reproof where we really do try to bring scripture to bear about hand, heart, and head. And then to see whether we're having an effect or not, we try to be as discerning as possible. Is it a worldly sorrow or is it a godly sorrow? There'll be better notes up online. All the scriptures will be, be laid out there as well. Sorry we went a bit late. A lot of content uh, to our groups. Thanks. Amen.